to have no fear about being vulnerable. And, and we were vulnerable together in that he got upset, I got upset, we cried together. He was upset about Helen and whatever. On today's episode of Rode Leadership, I have the absolute pleasure of having a conversation with someone who is the founder of Resilience Cubed, and we're going to talk about resilience a lot today, and you're going to hear about why in a minute. He's also the founder of um, CTech, which is a UK-based like, tech consultancy and advisory business. Apart from that, you know, he runs his own consultancy company. You would have seen him, actually, more than likely in the amazing Love Languages documentary, which is on Netflix, or in the book that Elliot Ray had, um, Dad's called The Dad. So he shared some of his story in there. But today we're just going a little bit deeper. We unpack some of that. And... Alec Grant is in the studio with me. How are you doing, sir? Hey, I'm good, man. Like I said, resilience is definitely in front front of mind for me because of who you are, what you do. The wonderful conversation we had a couple of weeks ago, I was just like, man, this is... Alex is dropping some gems in here. <laughs> 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 like, we, need to, we need to step into that for sure. But even before we even go there, actually, I always want to... Take it a step back and just understand a bit more around what was a younger Alec like growing up? Ooh, <laughs> it was sporty, actually, is the first thing. Yeah, so I was into so many sports that there the weren't many sports that I didn't do at school because I was just active, it was full of so much energy. And yeah, just loved doing sports, loved reading. So yeah, up at the library every week or every other week taking out books and I think I remember reading like spy stories that's what first got me that James uh, Bond kind of film called. type ah. yeah it kind of started and then I was then I found an author called Len Dighton started reading some of his books then I kind of got into Sherlock Holmes so I read pretty much all of those then I read some more of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's other non-Sherlock Holmes books and got into those then it was like The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Yeah, so, and then just go. Then I started reading kind of like self-development type books and things like that. I'm not even sure how that happened. Just kind of stumbled onto it. So in between, you know, liking my sport, which was football at the time, uh, moved away on from football now as an adult. Yeah, football, basketball, athletics, gymnastics, yeah, and then my reading. And yeah, I, I liked school as well. I'm one of those weird people that liked school. So, you know, I liked learning. I had a thirst for learning. And so it couldn't really give me enough because it was just like, okay, more and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So, yeah. Would you say you were in, because it's quite interesting to have someone who likes school, heavily into sports, like reading that's like three different kind of crowds or identities that you have especially as a young teenager so what crowd did you fit into I'm curious that's the thing because I hadn't even thought of it like that you know in terms of those things being separate lanes it, it was just like stuff that I was into so I would transition across each of those things you know at will and didn't think to it but even as you've just mentioned that now about crowds you, you're right in that what it did mean for me was that I didn't actually fit in with one crowd. So my, if I look at it, and, and some time ago I kind of looked at it a little bit but didn't really go into it. But if you look at it, I had a mixture of different types of friends at school and that has continued throughout my whole life, actually. When you look at people that I you know, associate with now friends or acquaintances to a greater or lesser degree. There's a mixture of different people from different backgrounds, industries, ages. I can relate to, I'd say, a much older generation. I'm 50 next year, so people in the 70s, 80s have conversations, sit down and whatever, and right the way through to, you know, the much younger generations. So... And I guess I never felt like I'd had to be part of one crowd either. I didn't feel that peer pressure while looking back on some of my formative years. I know a lot of people did. Like, for example, one of the crowd 
I distinctly remember secondary school in particular, you know, we're just starting to get into trying out alcohol and smoking and, and so on. And I remember I tried a cigarette once, maybe twice. I, it might have been a push three times, and I'm talking about a couple of puffs, no more than that. I'm like, nah, man, hey, that <laughs> so I'm like, I don't even know what you not see this. You lot go and knock yourselves out, but it ain't for me. And similarly with alcohol as well. I, I remember we went on a school like outdoor pursuits trip for like five days or something like that. And one of the boys, I don't even know how he managed to get with it, but he got some cans of whatever lager, beer, whatever it was at the time. And he'd got like two cans for a siege or something like that. I don't know who we thought we were, right? 11, 12, whatever. But he managed to do that. And I took like three sips of his catalog and I'm like, no, nope. <laughs> he wants mine. <laughs> like, I'm like, no, no, you got to keep trying. That's what they was. I'm like, look, if it's not nice on the first or second or third <laughs> sip, it's not happening, right? And if I have to drink copious amounts of it to acquire a taste for it, then it means it's not for me. So, and it wasn't like I didn't do the alcohol thing because I was raised by my good Jamaican grandmother and, you know, some of her traditional approaches to, you know, if you had a cold or something like that, she would put a couple of drops of brandy, um, only a couple, uh, in a hot chocolate or something like that. So it wasn't like I wasn't aware of, I hadn't been around alcohol or, or whatever, you know, I knew where the bottle was. We didn't have, there was no drinks cabinet or whatever, you know, I knew where she put it, could have easily got it any time, but there was no interest in, in, in doing that. Plus as well, alcohol, big thing wasn't made of it, it wasn't taboo. But it also, yeah, I guess I guess it was just managed, you know, for occasions, nice occasions and things like that. Yeah, not something that would be done on a regular basis. So, yeah. It sounds very much like you are someone who, you knew your own mind, even from a young age, where it was like, I've tried that, yeah, a couple of puffs, not for me. I've tried alcohol, yeah, not feeling it, not for me. Because a lot of times it's quite easy to get out of whether social pressure or peer pressure kind of push you to keep on doing something over and over again, but you're someone who's very much self-assured and nah, I know what I like, what I don't like, and I'm willing to just push back on other people. I don't know where that comes from because I've tried to understand it and I still don't in that, well, you know, why did I not feel that pressure? Because it was there around me. It was there around me all the time. I remember probably 14, 15 16, you know, people were doing poppers and the whole shebang. Some of the boys had even moved on to steroids as they were getting, you know, teens into young, you know, young adult men and getting into weights and stuff like that. And just none of that interested me at all. And, you know, could have easily got it yeah, if I wanted to, but just didn't interest me at all. But like I said, to this day, I'm, baffled as to why I, I didn't feel the pressure even though everyone was saying yeah, I'll try it and do this and yeah or, or even when it comes to music and to be into a particular scene and this that there, I'm like nah I'm alright I'm alright thanks so that was heavily influenced by one side of my brother's family in terms of my siblings so my brother at the time I remember he was into body popping and locking and whatever so that type of music as it was just coming to the fore and hip-hop there was that influence from him my sister she was heavily into soul and so the Luther Vandrasses and those guys and she was into reggae she was into a lover's rock there was Stevie see Wonder and, and so on so MJ you know Off the Wall Bad Album Thriller Jeez, Classics um, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so, yeah, heavily influenced by my brother and sister into genres of music, and that has continued. I mean, I've picked up other genres of music along the way as well, but, yeah, it was rooted in, in those genres for sure. Now you look at you describing you, well, when I say not conforming, and then I fast-forward some of your career to you making that decision to step out of the corporate world. Personally, I start to see a synergy because it's that same attitude of, okay, this is not the norm. This is people be like, what are you doing? We don't 
your man, your father, your husband, whatever it is, like, you don't step out of the corporate world. It's like, what are you playing at? But you being willing, like, again, I know my mind, I know what it is, why I'm doing it. And therefore being willing to take that on. I start to see that that parallels happening in, in that side of things as well. Again, man, you got some good Because <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't even looked at it like that either. That's why it takes someone else. It always takes someone else. You know, when you, you cut through the wood for the trees, it takes someone else looking from the outside in. But you're right. Uh, you know, as soon as the words came out of your mouth, I'm like, you know, spot on. Because I never felt at ease in the corporate world. Maybe when I had first graduated, maybe. But for the major part of my corporate career, never felt that it was forever. Even though I was a junior, still trying to make my way and didn't really know diddly squat in the grand scheme of things, never felt that it was going to be for me. And that actually um, momentum, if you like, continued throughout my career to the point where, as I then got five years behind me, pushing to 10 years, I'm like, is this it? You know, I'd be getting the train and the tube. Everyone's suited up. And I'm like, okay, so some of these people are a lot older than me. I wonder how long they've been doing it for. Some of these people are getting the train from Portsmouth so and beyond. So their journey is like two hours, you know, just on the train or so. And I remember I had a conversation with a guy in his 50s. And, he, you know, bonus time had come and it's all right. He was overheard him having a conversation with his wife on the phone, and she was screaming down the phone. He'd obviously clearly got a huge bonus, and blood and blood, she was all ecstatic and happy for him. And the, the thought that came through my head was, right, if you're in your 50s and you've ridden this cycle of working in the city and the crest of the wave of bonuses and years of doing really well, why are you even still here now? You've got like two or three kids. Why? why why do you even need to do this? And then fast forward now to this other company, Jeremy. I remember the guy's name now, Jeremy. I said to Jeremy, Jeremy, so what's your exit strategy? And he's like, what? What, what do you mean? I'm like, so you've been in the city like 20 odd plus years, man. So, and you've been a contractor for the past how many years? Um, must be some good day rate. So you're, you're out of here pretty soon, right? And he was like, no, no, no. You know, I've got a six bedroom house. I've got, four or five kids my eldest is just gone off to university and actually you know my wife doesn't work blah blah blah, blah. And I'm like, really he's like yeah yeah i'm still here i'm like okay so so what's your plan i'm like i can't stay in here much longer i've got to get out man this just doesn't make sense to be on this treadmill just going going constantly especially when i look at where i've come from and it feels even as a black person, and even with all the challenges that I faced in that corporate world, in the city, that I've actually done all right for myself, probably better than a good number of the black community. And I don't feel the need to have to keep pushing and striving, all right, going to go for VP and then go for director and this, that, there. I'm just, I'm like, Really, you see those hoops that they want you to jump through to reach all those positions. I ain't doing it. It's not happening. And I remember I held one of my bosses to task, took him to task. Not, not, well, maybe he might have viewed it that way, but I didn't view it in a bad way. It was like, it came down to appraisal and promotion and bonus time and this, that, that, that. And stuff happened. And I said to him, so... When are you going to explain to me what is it that exactly is that, that I needed to do to get the career progression and get the bigger pie and piece of the bonus pie? And he goes, oh, you didn't ask. I'm like, excuse me. I'm like, you're my boss, right? So if it's not your responsibility to tell me that, then whose responsibility is it? And it was like, well, everyone else is out there. No one's complaining about this. I'm like, I don't care about anybody else. I'm talking about me, right? And it was your job to, as my boss, to lead and guide me. And I said, oh, right, okay, you know what? Now I understand. Okay, that's, that's, it is what it is, fine. So, yeah, it was, it, again, that was another point where I just thought, there's a template of, in order to make 
progression. This is how you need to behave. This is what you need to do. These are the people that you need to mingle with. You need to go out and have drinks and stay out till whatever time and go to these places. I'm like, nope, you know what? Yeah, again, I'm saying <laughs> I'm not doing that. It's, it's not happening because I, I don't need to play those games. And what made it even worse was the fact that the organisation has tried to dress it up as if it was something else. Like it, it wasn't a game that everybody had to play. And I'm like, nah, man, it's not, it's not happening. So I remember my wife and I had a conversation and started having conversations over a period of a few years and said, so I definitely need to get out because this isn't right for me. Uh, and, and yeah, it was at that point that we started making plans to say, okay, we, we need to stop talking about an exit strategy and actually start putting some plans into place. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's the podcast worth listening to, which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. I was going to say that, listen to you, share that. It's just interesting how there's so many similar stories to people feeling like this is this is not right. This is not the right environment for me or not necessarily even having the help and support. But I think what makes yours different is you did something about it. Whereas a lot of, a lot of them, a lot of us just write it out like, okay, this is the game we need to play. This is the drinks we need to go to. These are the conversations we need to have. This is the corporate environment. So I'm just going to play that game. But you're like, nah, I will just bet on myself and do something else. But I love what you said right at the end where you like put a plan into place. I'm someone who, and I always say don't always follow my, my way of living. When I left corporate world, I didn't necessarily have a plan. It literally was a leap of faith that I literally left and stepped out. But you saying actually build it, start to think about it, be intentional about it, put a plan to place and all of that kind of stuff. I think it's quite important. But when you started planning, did it make you feel a lot better? Like even when you're doing a day to day, you know, okay, you know what? The plan is to leave in a year. Did that give you some impetus in the way you were doing your work? Because you knew there was a, there was a deadline in your mind that you're working towards. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I I was having a conversation a good few months ago and someone was talking about the same thing. And I said, Bessie, the way I got out was the plan. And that plan also created freedom for me because I'm like, you know what? I know I'm only doing this. So when we put the plan into place proper, it was actually at the birth of my eldest son. And we basically said, by the time he gets to three, one of us needs to be out the corporate world and it's more than likely to me because I had the crazy commuting to London and all the challenges that, that brings. We basically said, he's like getting to his third birthday and I'm still in the corporate world. So those few years leading up to that created focus. The first focus was within several months of him being born, I actually changed jobs and I jumped for money. I've got no two ways about it. I'm like, okay, so I'm going to be out in less than three years' time now. So if I have to take a job that might not be the best job, but it's paying me X amount more money that I can bank and we can bank and create that financial freedom, then doing it. So... And he could have, you know, easily said, well, you know, just, you know, not long had a baby, been with the company for that was there at the time, three years, and our relationships and all the rest of it built up and some goodwill and so on. Maybe it wasn't the right thing to do. But no, it was simple numbers game. What number do we need to reach? <laughs> because the number was also based on trying to do a couple of things. And get 
in that day, there was sufficient money in the bank in order for me to do that for a minimum of two years and not make any income. Now, we didn't foresee not being able to make any income in two years. We basically said, what if we had no additional income, you know, income from me personally, because my, uh, my wife was still working in the corporate world, how, how much money would we need to maintain the standard of living and, and be okay? And, and, and the other bit actually isn't just about the, pl- the planning from that aspect. It's also about the fact that up to that point, my wife and I had led. So it's definitely not frugal lives, but we chose what we wanted to spend our money on. So part of the planning was to say the things that we enjoy, the things that we get uh, pleasure from and all the rest of it, within reason, we'll put some money. We'll put some money into, we'll spend some money. The other things, <laughs> we won't either put any money into or we'll put the minimum amount of, of money. And in order, uh, and we did that in order to be able to bank as much money as we possibly could to help towards the exit strategy. So what that allowed, and, and interestingly enough, when I, when I was leaving the last bank that I was at, when my wife was pregnant with our second son, people were saying, you're leaving, you're going to another bank or whatever. I'm like, no. I'm like, no, I'm going, I'm going solo. I'm going to you know, set up a consultancy. And they're like, what? How can you afford to leave? you know, corporate world and investment banking and blah, 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 and this, that, and that, and that. Because I haven't been spending all my money over the past few years. I haven't been taking my salary and my bonuses and getting the bigger car, the bigger house, going on holidays worth however much, spending however much on clothes and this, that, and the other. You know, we went on some holidays and they were okay. We had a couple of nice cars and they were okay, but we just didn't appreciate it. We didn't go crazy. So by the time... And you could see the confused looks on people's faces as if to say, are you crazy? You're going to leave this job and just sit up on your own with no kind of whatever. And I'm like, you know, I haven't just been, we haven't just been planning this just today. You know, this has been a plan that has been in the making for the past few years. I even remember my last boss, something had happened. It'd been there's a lot of noise going on with one of the applications that I had ownership of, and I rarely took lunch. And if it was, it was really just pop out and come back in, and you know, often eat at my desk as as often we can do in that world. But at this time, I was like, you know what, I'm going out for lunch, and I took a, a, a longer lunch. And I got a call on my phone, and my boss was like, "Oh, this is going on. Blah, blah, blah. Why are you at your desk?" And I'm like, "Excuse me," I like. But so like, look, I'll be back when I finish my lunch and put the phone down and then my call my wife and said, I didn't bring my resignate the disc with my resignation letter on it in. So I'm just gonna type it out. I'm gonna print it. And when I go oh, when I go back to I'm gonna go I've just had this for my boss. Can go back to the office, uh, type it the new one out, print it out and handing it to him then. So I'm literally within it was no more than 45 minutes of me getting back at my desk, typed up, printed it out. I said to my boss, look, we need to have a, a, a chat. It's really important. We need to have that now. And he said, oh, that's why I can just pull the letter out. I said, there you go, I'm out. And he said, is it because of just, you know, what happened? Yeah, because you, you called me at lunchtime, yes. You still have my lunchtime, so I'm out. <laughs> Let a brother eat. <laughs> Let a brother eat. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and he said, "I'm going to hang on to this for a couple of days." And I'm like, "No, no, 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 no! Give it to HR now. <laughs> you don't need to hold on to it for any amount of time. I'm out, right? So, yeah, it's, it's over. You know, I'm, I'm good. Enjoyed the ride, but but I'm done." I think a lot of times we let life let happen to us. We don't take the time to actually create the kind of lifestyle that we want. And I think in the culture, in a world where we're always on, we're always on the go, we're always moving, it's it's hard for us to slow down. We're like, well, what is the lifestyle that I want to create? What am I willing to put up with 
to create a lifestyle? What am I willing to sacrifice to create that lifestyle? Having those conversations is super important because then we now know, okay, I'm exerting my energy in this way because it allows me to create that future lifestyle that I'm, what I'm heading towards rather than I'm just in a hamster wheel going around and around and around, around. But one day I'm going to get there. I'm going to stop and like, no, one day never happened. One day is such a great phrase that people have. One day I'm going to go do. In fact, there's a quote I had on my phone from night, which said yesterday, you said tomorrow. And I've had under for years because it always reminded me like, now there is no one day. It's, it's now. And you start to build those things and put them to place. Just like, you were able to be like three years. This is it. You can go into the office and they're like, "Is this is this a reaction?" I'm like, no, it's not. It's planned. Like, I'm good. You were just the final confirmation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now I'm out. You've touched it a number of times. You you mentioned um, your wife. Even having that, I guess that partnership there, having that person there to have that conversation with, is such a really important thing and. I guess it leads me to the, the other part of of your story where you lost your wife, which you've, you've talked about in the past in other books and different things like that. But even that experience for you losing someone who is your partner, who's your best friend, who you plan and you've had all these different things for the future with. I mean, what was what was it for you that like, going through that experience? Oh boy, yeah, oh, so many elements, so many elements to it. I, I, I think to start with, as much as the initial impact of my wife passing away was significant, one thing was really clear in my mind, and, and that thing was in order for me to do the best of my boys, I need to get myself into the best place that I possibly can. And I don't know where that thought came from. It was like an overwhelming thing that that was there. It was like, and and I'm talking about within days of Hazel dying, it was work on yourself, work on yourself, work on yourself, because... You're going to be no use to the boy if you don't. And in the subsequent time period, I remember, and I've got it up on my wall now, still, you can't pour from an empty cup. Take care of yourself first. And I keep coming back to a a related phrase when I talk to people about this, which is, you know, most of us have probably all been on a flight and... And when the, the, the air staff go through their demonstrations and they say, put your, when they talk about the masks falling from, from the ceiling, and they say, put your mask on first before you tend to someone else that is in your care. And so I don't know how I did it, but I knew that I needed to figure out a way to... Obviously, I couldn't tend to myself in isolation because I had a newborn baby, brought him home at three days, and a three-year-old. But within a matter of weeks, I was talking to a therapist and counsellor. I engaged with a, a grief, a grief charity who... Uh, I went to some group therapy sessions... I contacted Widowed and Young, which is a charity. And over the course of that first year, put in place a number of things, which I now know to be very pivotal to to me getting through that first year and subsequent years. You know, how was I being guided to that? I have absolutely no idea because in the midst of the pain and the anguish and everything else, there was some clarity around a few things. I, re- I remember one of my relatives said to me, Love, maybe three years after Hazel died, we were concerned about it. I said, of course you were. She said, no, you were so clear about certain things. We didn't know how or why you were clear about them. 
like you were saying, this needs to be done like this, this needs to be done. And we thought, is it grief? Is it something else? Is he whatever? Is he losing it? And so we, you know, we wanted to just keep an eye and check in on him. But she said, clearly, those were absolutely the right things that you should have been doing. I don't know how you knew or did those things because uh, you shouldn't have been able to. You should not have been able to have clarity around certain things that you did, but somehow you did. Like I said, I don't know how. It just happened. They just happened. The, 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 you know, I'm not necessarily a religious man. I'm spiritual. So maybe something, universe, Hazel, my grandmother now was guiding me, supporting me, and, and bringing that clarity of thought. But, yeah, that those immediate, you know, that immediate time period and, and the subsequent time afterwards, you know, don't get me wrong, was I crying on many occasions, just, you know, in my car, walking down the street, out in a restaurant. Yeah, you know, I, was, I cried a lot. Uh, I was upset. I didn't sleep for seven months, other than one or two hours a night, if that. Uh, for, for seven months straight, I sat on, I slept on the sofa for seven months straight because I couldn't sleep in, you know, what was our marital bed. And, you know, at times, you know, my, my youngest son, you know, the Moses basket would bring it down, put it next to me on the sofa, feed him, put him to sleep or whatever, and I would be asleep on, on the sofa. Even though my at one point my back was aging and killing me or whatever, but I just couldn't bring myself to go and sleep in what was hazel on my bed. So, yeah, tough times, but and somehow I, I found a way. You know, listen to you talk about that clarity that came out of came out of nowhere in the moment I think it's something that it seems like you've always had which is quite interesting though it's and that's why I always go back to the, I always like to hear stories from people when they were younger to where they are right now because in the moment of things happening one thing I'm hearing coming out from you repeatedly is I have the clarity of thought of this is what I want to do. This is what I need to do. This is who I am. And despite my circumstances around me, that seems to be like a consistent thing that you've you've built into you from a very young age. And it's just come out in different ways, shapes or forms. And um, when you talk about some of the emotions that you're feeling, the grief that you're feeling, did you show that to the boys, especially your son, who was just there was three, or did you hide that's yeah, that's a really significant point that you just made because one of the things that helped me to understand what I should do was actually turn to a couple of uh, grief charities and, and one in particular called Winston's Wish, who help parents who've lost a child or children who've lost a parent, and the material and then the data, if you like, from them was was really really clear in how you articulate the death of a parent to a child is partly dependent on their age because just even their recognition and knowledge of what death is and its permanence doesn't even really properly happen until they're five to seven. Maybe it can be a little bit younger, maybe, and then it certainly can be older depending on the child. But one of the things that they prescribe, if you like, that is... You, you don't use ambiguous language. You keep the language simple, but also as well, don't, even simple things like don't use passed away. Say died, because, and, and then stick with that word, died, dead, dead, consistently throughout the conversations in order for that message to, to at some point, it will, will, will register. To be consistent as well, because at three, to seven and plus whatever, you know, there was still not really the understanding of what death was properly. You know, he used to, in the, in the first few days, weeks and months, and maybe up to a year, might even possibly be a little bit longer, you know, he was still thinking that mummy would come back at some point. And I'd have those conversations with him. And, 
you know, my, but society, uh, societal instincts, as I call them, is to, as a man, not only do you have to be strong, but to my boy, you know, I guess I should be strong. I'm not sure that I'm upset. But actually, all the data that's exactly what, what you shouldn't do. You should actually cry. Now, it doesn't mean you should be crying in front of them all day, every day, or whatever, because that's taking it to one side equation. But to have no fear about being vulnerable. And, and we were vulnerable together in that he got upset, I got upset, we cried together. You know, there are times where he was upset and I would cry and whatever. And there are other times actually where I got upset and he would be upset and he'd put his hand around me and say, it's okay, daddy, we're going to be okay. And he was obviously mimicking, you know, how I'd behaved with him. But it was important to be not only clear that this was permanent, but also to, for him to see that actually it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to cry. It's okay to be upset that mummy died. And that has continued for, for, for him, even though, you know, he's nearly 13 and continued with my, my youngest son now who, you know, never ever met his mum, but has a relationship with her based on photos and videos and stories about her and everything. Uh, myself and other family members and friends and so he feels like he knows her uh, he will talk about her as if he knows her as if he'd met her and yeah it's it's important to to you know he'll he'll turn around and say oh i miss mummy and someone someone would say how can you miss someone you never met but as far as he's concerned it's his mum he knows enough about her from you know her favorite color he knows that she didn't like seafood, et cetera, et cetera. He, you know, he, or he, he will sometimes mention these things about her as if he knew them and it wasn't that he'd heard them from me or some other family member. So, yeah, vulnerability uh, on the one aspect as a man is important. And, and I remember I articulated a few times in different forums and things like that that <laughs> this about the societal norms, vulnerability is actually a superpower. We've got it twisted. We've got it so, so wrong, right? We seem to have somehow missed the trick in that being vulnerable allows us to get in touch with a side of us that isn't ever possible to get in touch with without being vulnerable. You, you can't get in touch with certain sides of you if you're not willing to be vulnerable. And one of the things that was also clear to me was that as a now solo father and raising two boys, I can't afford to, to show that a masculinity that isn't in touch with who I am, that isn't in touch with my beliefs, and, and is going to subject them to the stereotypes of what it means to be a boy and what it means to be a man. And that's just period, let alone with everything that we see going on in the world today. It's so, so important. I can't stress how important it is to me raising two young men in a world that wants them, constantly trying to tell them to be a particular way, constantly trying to tell them that boys and men don't cry, boys and men should be tough, boys and men don't do vulnerability. It's just not an option. It really is not an option for me to be that way and for me to raise my boys that way. And, and while that is out of step with most, I think, if you like, uh, people that we know and so on, it's just not an option. I think it's such a great, a great way to raise kids where it's, you can express the fullness of who you are and not hide from it. It's amazing how your youngest son, never me, your mom can can talk about mommy and can express that that relationship. And that all comes from you creating that environment and being open and not hiding that part of yourself, which even as I listen to you talk right now, obviously it's still raw, it's still emotional, it's still there. But you opening that side of yourself and giving some of that to to your son. 
and he can feel that love and that joy and he he takes down his own journey that's absolutely amazing it's such a an example of the impact that we have to play and I'm not going to say as, as parents but as men in particular to raise our children up with that side of them because we're modeling that in a day to day and we can choose to which which you, if you chose to, you'd be like, you know what, I'm going to protect myself and protect that side of me because I don't want to show them that hurt, grief, pain, whatever. But actually by you protecting yourself, you're limiting the experiences your children are going to have. And I love you just describing that in the way that you just did. It's so powerful. So if I don't show them that, who is? Right? Where else are they going to learn that from? And in fact, uh, there were some members of, our family who took issue with my approach and said, no, no, you should be putting a bold face on it and being brave and run around, right? (laughs) I don't know what anecdotal evidence you have, right? But I've gone to the grief experts. I've gone to the experts who work with children every single day who've lost a parent, right? In the UK, in every single class, right, uh, the, the, the data is that in every single class throughout the UK, there is a child that has lost a parent. That's facts. So this charity, Winston's Vision, whatever, they deal with children in this situation every single day. This is what they do. I don't know how you think you seem to know better than this charity, but you know what? I'm going to follow their advice. But also as well, I'm like, have you lost a wife or a husband? Have you had to raise a newborn baby and a three-year-old? No. But you're trying to tell me how to do it. <laughs> like, look, I appreciate what you, you, you know, you might be coming from a good place in this, but you need to fall back. Because if you don't fall back, <laughs> yeah, we're going to end up in there with a different relationship because... Uh, you know, I have to raise my kids in the best way that I know how. Now, if I was doing some fundamentally obscure and weird things and whatever that were to the detriment of my boy's well-being and whatever, then by all means, come to me with, with your concerns or whatever. But outside of that, get out of my face, man, because uh, 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 um, you're just chatting nonsense now. And, and it was something that I didn't want to do. But it was something that was needed. I needed to do because I get people have their opinions about things, and that's fine because we're all entitled to. But I think, especially, well, I don't think it's a recent thing by any stretch of the imagination. But people often like to give opinions based on feelings rather than facts, right? And I know that's a hard thing to not do, but also at the same time, I'm like, well. In one, no one can truly understand what I'm going through unless you've been through that. And that, that, that counts for life, right, in general. And even when two people go through a very similar situation, their interpretation of, and how they deal with it is you know, completely different. Again, one of the things that has been an underlying theme for me has been, especially over the period of time that I got to know lots of other young widows and widowers with children and, and so on, was that even within that community of widows and widowers with children, there were there was a, there were you know different use cases. So there were women who were uh, whose partners had passed away while they were pregnant, and they were in the last months of their pregnancy, so um, had to continue pregnancy on their own. Through to women who'd been widowed multiple times. Now, even a, a woman who's a good friend of mine now, I've been friends for eight years. You know, she's been widowed twice in that period. Her husband died in the same year as Hazel, and then another partner that she had died a few years ago. The economic circumstances that that people are in are, are different. You know, Hazel and I were really anal about finances and wills and, and things like that, and so we were with. You know, we'd, we'd made wills and we'd said, you know, if one of us passes away, this is what we're going to put in place, blah, blah, blah. There was a, a woman who 
was a few years younger than me at the time, her husband passed away. He committed suicide. Uh, To mid-30s, he committed suicide. No will. She worked one shift a week. They'd just moved house. It's a lovely big home, but that had a £2,700 a month mortgage. How was she going to pay that with three kids and a whole host of other bills? HMRC was chasing her because of her husband's expense and all kinds of things. So what I was able to do in part as well was say, hey, my situation is shit, (laughs) of course, but actually it could be even more crap. I could have financial concerns. Hazel didn't commit suicide. She didn't leave me. You know, she would have been around if she could. And I used some of those situations of other people to help me say my situation is shit, but actually I can take this from my situation. And I use that in part to also kind of help me carve a new pathway out for, for me and my boy. Live your quotes. That's the name of the newsletter that you need to subscribe to. Go on www.everydayleadership.co.uk, subscribe to Live Your Quotes. It's a bi-weekly newsletter that comes out with a quote with some information on how I'm looking at that quote, how that relates to my life to make it more real and authentic and come alive for you. As well as bits and pieces, it might be books I'm reading, it might be some other content I'm tapping into and some bits and pieces around the podcast. It's a nice, short, succinct newsletter, which I know you're going to enjoy. But to enjoy it, you need to subscribe to it. So again, if you go to the podcast website, www.everydayleadershippodcast.co.uk, you're able to get access to Leave Your Quote newsletter. Now let's get back into the episode. What is it that people can give you in this type of period because you mentioned how obviously we leave with our feelings and we give you advice and it's not needed what do you need the most in this kind of situation it, uh, what was good from one of the eight charities was that uh, and i think it was winston's wish again they actually put together a guide as you know i think it was widowed and young they actually had a a flyer and a4 on one side was when someone is, you know, a young widower with children, or not necessarily children, but a young widower, a do's and don'ts. And it was really as simple as that. A list of do's and don'ts in terms of actions that you should do, actions that you shouldn't do, things that you should say, things that you shouldn't say. And when I discovered this, I was my friend who was helping me out, a really good close friend of mine. I said, look, all the people that you're communicating to that are coming to you that stuff, <laughs> send them this. Because, again, this charity have been there, done it, got the T-shirt, they've worked with young widowers, they know exactly, and have used that to, to create this flyer. This is absolutely great. And I'm like, oh, my God. It's so, so simple. It is so, so simple. And, and it was just really simple things like, again, you know, two young boys, got a house to run. And people mean it with good intentions. But if you need anything, let me know. I'm like, my wife has just died. And I've got two young boys. <laughs> I need a whole lot of fucking things, right? <laughs> but then to also put it onto me, to say, I, in, in, you know, I need to find some headspace to try and figure out what help it is that you should give me. As opposed to what this guide said and what I see people around us actually did. So one of my cousins come to the house, came to the house every day for God knows how long, and he'd sort the washing out. He, you know, the first few times he said, how do you use your machine? How do you use your dryer? How do you use your dishwasher? Told him the first couple of times, and that was it. So he'd come, not even ask whether he should do this. He would just do them. A couple of friends, every few weeks or month or whatever, um, one of them would come with baby wipes and nappies. He'd say, hey, are you going to be in? I'm passing by. If you're not in, 
I'm just going to leave them on the doorstep for you. Let me know if you need some more. Otherwise, I'll just bring the next batch. Another guy <laughs> would do shopping. So he would do online shop, fruit, veg, meat, and whatever. Get it delivered to the house like once a month. And he did that for a period of time. Didn't ask whether it was should, what he should do. He just kind of did it. Didn't ask, you know, do you like apples or bananas or oranges or whatever. Just, you know, didn't bunk me down with any of those details. Just did a shop on the basis that there's going to be something in there that we like and it's going to be useful and relevant and so on. So, And I get it's partly a British thing as well where we don't like to talk about grief. We don't like to talk about death. And even worse than not talking about it, that we don't want to face it either. So there are some people that ran in the opposite direction. And I'm not saying they are bad people, but I'm saying because as a culture, we don't, when we talk to people, at least in, in the UK, you know, say, how are you doing and whatever, we ask that question not to really understand whether someone's doing badly. It's something that we say, because if people start to really offload or whatever, you know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're not interested. So there are people who could face me on a daily basis and, and could put some sentences together, but there are others. And like I said, I'm not blaming them, but it was easier for them to have no contact with me and the boys than it was to be put in a position that made them feel uncomfortable. So rather than them feeling uncomfortable, they just removed themselves. That's a hard lesson to learn in life. But I understand it. Am I happy about it? Of course not, because, you know, it would have been nice to. But you know what? It, it is what it is. But that's the other thing in relation to vulnerability, where, you know, we don't really want to talk about difficult things. So it's easier to just run away or cover over it or, or whatever. And, and that, for me, was an option that was available to me. I, I remember I said, I was, again, I don't know who I was having a conversation with. And they said, I think just as I said to you about something else, I said, I felt that I had no option but to be this particular way. And a couple of different people on um, different occasions said to me, actually, no, you made a choice. You still had a choice. Even though to you, there was only one path that you could have gone down. You had a choice because other people in a similar situation, would have made a different choice than you. You chose to step up. You chose to be a dad. You chose to be vulnerable. You chose to raise your boys in a way that that wasn't going to succumb to the stereotypes around being boys and, and men. That's a decision that I've now actually embraced it and said, uh, yes, actually, I have made that decision to do that. It, it took me a little while. To, to accept and get my head around it being a, a choice because I just felt that the, the, there was no choice. But yeah, it, just in life in general now, in terms of one of the, the mantras that I, that I adopt or ways of living rather that I adopt is in every situation, no matter how much of it is out of our control, we still all have a choice. And if you can look at life in that way, it brings a different perspective. Uh, there's a the serenity prayer, right? Whether you're religious or not, right? The serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I can't change Hazel dying. I can't do it. But what I can do is say, what can I control in this situation? I can raise my boys. I can be the best dad that I can be to them. I can show them that vulnerability is a superpower. I can show them that actually, despite shit happening around you that is out of your control, you can still choose to live your life in a particular way. That's a hard thing for a lot of people to accept. Right? That's a hard thing. 
but I've been through sufficiently enough things in my life to recognize that. Do I focus on the things that I can't control? Do I, and I don't like using the term play the victim because we're built differently and clearly my makeup is different probably than a lot of people in that in adversity, I seem to somehow find strength from somewhere and I don't know. And I know not everybody has that. But actually, when you look at, and I'm a geek around danger and stuff like that, with all the reading and everything like that, when you look at the stories of people that have been through adversity, (laughs) there are a few core themes. And and one of those is somebody... (laughs) somewhere along the line for some reason made a decision to accept the stuff that was out of their control that happened to them but not let it dictate who they were for the rest of their lives and that was a conscious thing that was done and I said I might be a widower but a widower isn't who I am I might be a solo dad but a solo dad isn't who I am I've been defined by that circumstances yeah yeah it's powerful and it's um that choice is the key i think fundamentally the key to the life going back to the point you made that already the lifestyle that we choose to have is you recognizing that you do have a choice to play in everything i might not have played a part in the circumstances i find myself in but i do have a choice to make in the circumstances and how I'm going to navigate that situation. And you made, for you, it was a no-brainer. You just yeah. carried on. Yeah. But like I said, for a lot of people, that was just completely debilitated them and shut them down. Like you just found a way to process your grief as well as raise two amazing boys in that period of time, which is, which is inspiring. I'm curious, how would you with everything you've gone through, define resilience? Well, (laughs) yeah, it's taken on a much bigger meaning in this past few years, actually, than I had looked at it previously, and hence why I started the project, because for me, resilience is about that serenity prayer, if I'm you know, if I wanted to encapsulate it, there is so much stuff that happens around us. You know, I don't know what the numbers would be, you know, hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of, well, there will be millions of things that happen in the world, right, around us. There are 7.7 billion in the world, people in the world. So many things that happen that are outside of our control. Resilience is about saying, what can I take control of? It's really as simple as that, because what that does, that allows the meaning to cover a number of different things in our lives. It can cover adversity and the extremes that I've experienced it, with Hazel dying. It can cover everyday life, right? So, you know, we look around us, what's going on in the world today. We're being bombarded constantly, right? Left, right and centre, social media, advertising, that's telling us that either we're not good enough, we're either not the right colour, we're not the right race, we're not the right religion. Our house isn't big enough. Our car isn't big enough. We're not going to the right places on holiday. We don't have the right friends. We don't have the right set of clothes. The list, we don't have enough money. The list goes on. We're being constantly bombarded, left, right, and center uh, about how inadequate, how not good enough we are. And even when it's not direct, it's kind of like, you know, you walk out the street, you know, Someone's got the bigger house, someone's got the, the car, someone's doing this, that, and the other. Even kids on an everyday basis, you know, going out to school and who's got the latest phone or trainers or this, that, the other. For me, resilience is can I put on my armor? When I step out my yard, what armor, what shield, what protection do I need to have in place in order to, when stuff's coming at me, what do I need to do? What can I do? And it's not even stepping at you hard anymore now as well, is it? Because, you know, these device, you know, the phones, it's there, you know. It's, it's there. your house Every right next to you. Minute, you just right? bing, bing, bing. Yeah, constantly. And so for me, I hadn't realised it. And when Resil- the Resilience Project came to me some months back, well, in fact, during lockdown, it seemed as if everything was pointing 
to this. And I couldn't, and I couldn't find a word for it. And so for me, my thing now is about resilient living. Resilient living is saying, what do I need to do to live the life that I want? Not the life that the big companies want me to, you know, the supermarkets and companies. Not the life that the big tech companies want me to live. Not the life that the governments and, and, and so on want me to live. What is the life that I want? How can I live intentionally? And, and then not only how can I live intentionally, what do I do? So when you talk about atomic habits from James Clear or tiny habits from BJ Fogg, when you look at the one thing from the one thing book from Jay Papazan, when you look at a number of different things out there, especially when you then go into things like stoicism and you truly look and understand what is at the heart and root of stoicism as a philosophy. Humanity has been on this earth for tens and hundreds of thousands of years. There have been pandemics, there have been people dying of diseases, people dying of cancer and all those things long and other things long before we even had names for, for mental illnesses and so on and so forth. But throughout all of that, humanity has managed to find a way to be resilient. I think in these modern day times, there's a whole new level of resilience that is needed because of technology and advancements of science, both medical and so on to the point where we're being bombarded constantly in ways that we've never been. If we look at technology, right, in the grand scheme of our time on Earth, right, technology is but a minuscule of that amount of time. So what we have developed as humans is particular ways of living that have developed over hundreds of thousands of years. Technology now is taking us down a whole different path at quite a rate. We can't cope. We can't physically cope with the amount of data, the amount of information, the amount of noise going on in the world. So because of that, we have to find a way to live resiliently. There's no two ways about it. There are no two ways about it. Resilience isn't a kind of nice to have. <laughs> it's a kind of how, how do we get resilience taught in schools so that the next generation is coming through? How do we ensure that those of us as adults, right, can learn how to be resilient? How do we ensure that the least privileged in our society, who've got a whole host of different worries and whatever, we uh, enable them to find ways to live resiliently and that, that we can support them? It's, yeah, it's much bigger than me, clearly. But for me, I want to do my little part of saying, how can I take my experiences that I've been through, through, you know, wasn't raised by my parents, I was raised by my grandmother until she died of cancer. I looked after her and my siblings and assisted it until I was 14. Take all those experiences from my childhood to this present day. I'm a regular guy, you know, don't come from any level of privilege. I want to be able to show other people, say, shit happens, I get it, I get it, but actually you don't have to accept that way of living. You don't have to accept actually, that this has happened, so I'm just going to give up. Whether it be you know, working-class background trying to make good, whether it be a person of colour, whether it be a woman, and the injustices and the microaggressions that we face every day. Yes, living in the UK, are we going to be able to, to overturn some of those things? No. And, and some of those things will take a while. But actually, there's a certain amount of things that we are in control of that we can do. If I can do it, you know, being nobody special or anything like that, I can face head on my wife dying. She died five hours after giving birth to our second son. <laughs> if I can do that and raise my two, you know, it's nine and a half years now since she died. If I can do that, then maybe a few other people can do that. And if I can inspire a few other people, and a few other people inspire a few other people. And that chain kind of just expands and grows. You know, maybe I can leave the world in a more resilient place than the way I found it. Maybe my boy's generation can live life differently than the way that my generation has lived life because that's how we felt we needed to, or that's what we've inherited from previous generations. I am definitely inspired 
by the work that you're doing, by who you are and how you show up, how you are, I'm going to say, breaking down a lot of stereotypes and consistently just pushing forward a new way of looking at things, a new way of operating in life and a new way of taking complete ownership of life for sure. Where can people find out more about the resilience project that you're working on? Yeah, so on Instagram and Twitter, uh, the handles are Resilience Cubed in the middle of building a website, but it's not ready yet, but the Resilience Cubed website um, will be up. I'm on LinkedIn, Anakin Grant, and you're going to put some stuff in the show notes, right? So that, yeah, that's me, really. I'm on socials. And hopefully the website's coming soon. I would highly encourage you to tap into the world of Alec Grant. Like I said, everything will be in the show notes, but he has some great, amazing writing on LinkedIn and other social platforms. And once the website's up, I will also update the show notes to put it in there for sure. But as you've heard, man's stories of just being real, you know, I fully support your journey to kind of create that world not just for us, but for the future generations coming up with your kids and my kids, where they're a lot more resilient, where they're a lot more intentional with the lives that they're creating. So I'm fully 100% behind you and your mission, and um, I really appreciate you sharing your story today. You're welcome. It's, you know, thank you for giving me access to, to the platform that you've created. It's a calling for me now. I didn't appreciate it until lockdown that, when I was looking at you know, my life and living intentionally, uh, um, it, it became really apparent that actually, as much as my experiences have provided challenges and at times where I've not wanted to accept those challenges, the reality is that my calling is to use those challenges to the benefit of others. And actually, the privileges that I now have are in order to help others who don't have access to those privileges or opportunities and that's really important to me this is everyday leadership we'll see you next week here's a quick preview of who we've got coming up in next week's episode make sure you're following the show so you don't miss out on this amazing guest but even in my kids if i can't explain to them right so i can't communicate they're not going to do the things that i i want them to do Leadership is also about role modeling. It's really when people feel like they don't have control 